Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we give thanks unto thee on this day for the glory of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, thy Son and Savior. We thank thee that his victory is our victory, that in him we have power, victory over sin and death, and have a good conscience before thee. Make us bold, therefore, in terms of this faith, knowing that we are thine, and thou shalt protect and defend us. Grant our Father that in faith and in assurance, day by day we may live in the light of the resurrection and in the joy of that first Easter morning. In Jesus' name, Amen. Our scripture lesson is Matthew 27, verses 50 following. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. The earth did quake, and the rocks rent, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose, and came out of the graves after his resurrection, and went into the holy city, and appeared unto many. Now when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake, and those things that were done they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. And many women were there beholding afar off, which followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering unto him, among which was Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Jose and the mother of Zebedee's children. When the even was come, there came a rich man of Arimathea named Joseph, who also himself was Jesus' disciple. He went to Pilate and begged the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be delivered. And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out of in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulchre and departed. And there was Mary Magdalene and the other Mary sitting over against the sepulchre. Now the next day that followed, the day of the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees came together unto Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember that that deceiver said, While he was yet alive, after three days I will rise again. Command therefore that the sepulchre be made sure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away, and say unto the people, He is risen from the dead. So the last error shall be worse than the first. Pilate said unto them, Ye have a watch. Go your way. Make it as sure as you can. So they went and made the sepulchre sure, 
sealing the stone and setting a watch. As we view the events that culminated the Passion Week, for us it moves from the horror of Good Friday to the joy of Sunday morning and the resurrection. But let us view it instead from the perspective of the people of Jerusalem. For them it moved from the joy of early Good Friday to the horror of the resurrection. What? In those days, an execution was often a great holiday, especially if the person being executed was someone intensely disliked. People packed their picnic lunches and went out to the place of execution, ready to enjoy the spectacle, ready to taunt and to mock the dying man, ready to ridicule him for everything he represented and to enjoy the spectacle of his death. Thus it was, there were great crowds at Golgotha, prepared, ready to enjoy the day with their picnic lunches, with their shouts and cries, he saved others, himself he cannot save. Great day. But as the day progressed, instead of rejoicing on the part these people would come to enjoy the sight of seeing Jesus die, the temper turned to uncertainty. And after his last cry from the cross, we are told they left in fear and in terror. The last word from the cross was simply this, Father, into thy hand I commit my spirit. Why should this simple word have culminated the shock and consternation These simple words were a quotation from Psalm 31, the evening prayer of Israel. A prayer that speaks indeed of the trial and tribulation of the saints, but also speaks of the victory that belongs to the people of God. And the psalmist David speaks of the glory that is the inheritance of the saints and declares, Thou hast set my feet into a large room. God has established me and prospered me in the face of all my problems. Father, into thy hand I commit my spirit. This psalm was the evening prayer of Israel. 
children learned it at their mother's knee. It was a prayer they recited at bedtime and slept in the serenity and the security that having committed their spirit into the hands of Almighty God, they could both lay them down in peace and sleep, for thou, Lord, only makest me to dwell in safety. It was a psalm that spoke of all the security of faith, all the sense of assurance and well-being that spoke of home and of security. And for a dying man on the cross to conclude with these words, Father, into thy hand I commit my spirit, shook them to the core of their being. And fear fell upon all the multitude. And they left in terror. as he died also with these words of peace. Supernatural signs were immediately manifested. The veil of the temple was rent in twain, and the Holy of Holies desecrated, the temple forever abandoned by God. And the earth was shaken with a fearful earthquake, not a normal one. Because the damage was not primarily to buildings, although it rent rocks in twain, we are told, but primarily to the graves. And as they left Golgotha and returned to the city, they passed those opened graves with bodies missing from sight. How could an earthquake accomplish this? What had happened? Great fear was on all. All these signs fulfilled the current expectations of what would happen on Judgment Day. They fulfilled all that Sinai had foreshadowed, moreover. And so in terror they returned to their homes, beating their breasts and wailing, for everything seemed to indicate that judgment day had come. And indeed it had. On that day, the sins of all the saints, past, present, and future, were judged and crucified to the cross. Jesus Christ dying in your stead and mine, all who believe on him. So that it was our judgment day. An execution was passed upon one who became our substitute so that we stand innocent and acquitted before the presence of God. But it was judgment day also on Jerusalem for having crucified the Lord of glory. 
And our Lord had declared in that very week that not a stone would be left standing upon another in the days to come as judgment fell upon Jerusalem. Moreover, at Sinai, when Moses received the law, the mountain did quake. And we are told that this was a sign of the shaking that would come of all things and of all people as the judgment of the law fell upon them. And so it is that Paul in Hebrews wrote that a great shaking was going to characterize the gospel age. Now the things which are, are being shaken, so that the things that cannot be shaken may alone remain. And we are living now in the culminating time of the shaking, so that only that which is unshakable might remain. The world's second shaking thus was begun on that day, leading to the final and total judgment. But the people of Jerusalem feared this was the end of the total judgment. And they went to their homes in terror. And history's most fearful Sabbath as people huddled in their homes. What was the meaning of these things? When would the end strike her? He whom they had crucified had been revealed as God. The disciples were wrapped in their grief. The unbelievers were filled with their fear and terror. The Sanhedrin went to Pilate and demanded a Roman guard for the tomb. This was a hysterical hope of men afraid of the resurrection, afraid of the prophecy. They hoped and believed that because Rome had killed Christ, Rome also might be able to keep him from rising. So ended Saturday, the second day of fear and of horror. Then came Sunday morning, the first day of the week, the resurrection morning. And Jesus Christ arose from the dead and appeared to his disciples. But the dead saints, missing since the earthquake on Friday, which opened their graves, entered into Jerusalem to witness to the unbelievers. And house after house in Jerusalem, 
heard a rap on the door, and someone who had been dead and buried for some time for years stood there to witness to them concerning Jesus Christ and the resurrection. These unbelievers, no doubt, listened with horror and fear. And those who walked the streets met and encountered these men long since dead and buried, witnessing to them. Resurrection Day, which brought joy to the disciples, increased the shock and horror of the ungodly. What was the meaning of all this? Why this witness, this double witness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and of the saints? First, Jesus Christ entered death and destroyed death. Second, in pagan antiquity, when demigod heroes and divinized kings went to their graves, they were usually accompanied by great numbers of men and women who were sacrificed in order to accompany them into death. Excavations by archaeologists have repeatedly revealed that some of these great heroes and kings of antiquity were sometimes accompanied by fifty and a hundred men into death. Men who were killed because the king or the great hero had died. Even the poorest, who could not afford to sacrifice any slaves, or had no slaves to sacrifice to accompany their loved ones, nevertheless went through this formality of having their loved one accompanied into death. They donned black garments and veiled themselves with black veils and followed the body to the grave to indicate that because they were covered with black, they were also symbolically dead and were accompanying their loved one into the world of death. Thus the great and the small of the ancient world as they entered in death, took others to death with them in one way or another. But in sharp contrast to all this, Jesus Christ entered death to destroy it and to rob death of all power and meaning. And the graves were opened and the bodies of some saints resurrected to appear as witnesses in Jerusalem. These resurrected saints constituted the church of the Advent appearing to witness to a death-bound world. They were the church of the future, the church of the new creation, brought into being ahead of time as a witness. Third, Christ thus is presented as the first fruit, 
and the saints as sharers in his victory and life. So that the nature of the witness is revealed to us. This is the inheritance of all saints, the resurrection. When we die, we go immediately to be with the Lord. At the end of time, we are again body and soul united in the resurrection of the dead, and we put on a new and eternal body and we enter in eternally into the joy of the new creation. This witness, then, is the witness that this is a day of joy for the believer and a day of promise. It was a witness to Jerusalem. But Jerusalem could not accept it because of its perversity. So it is a witness to us. Our Lord said, though one should rise from the dead, they will not believe. And on that day many rose from the dead, but they did not believe, though they cringed in horror and in shock. The risen saints did not go to the disciples. They had no need of this witness. They had the word of the Lord. The Lord had said to them, On the third day I shall rise again. And the Lord sends us no special witness, no special testimony concerning his promises to us. He has given us his word. It should have been enough for the disciples then, and it should be enough for us now. It gives us the blessed assurance. He is risen as the first, the first fruits of them that are asleep. And we have the blessed Assurance of heaven and at the end of time of the resurrection of the body and life in the new creation. For Christ our Lord hath risen, our joy that hath no end. The Lord is risen. He is risen indeed. Let us pray. We give thanks unto thee, Almighty God, for the joy of the resurrection and for the blessed assurance that all these things are a witness to us. that our Lord is King of creation, that nothing in life nor in death can withstand him, that he is Lord of lords and King of kings, 
that we as his people will receive the care of the king. But he having died for us will do yet more and care for us. Confirm us, O Lord, in this faith. In Jesus' name. Amen. Are there any questions then? Yes. In reference to the revelation by the Pope, and as many of the Catholics, the Jews did not kill Christ. Um, I, would you please give us the background for the news of this? Because I never heard of this actually. Yes, the statement by the Pope and the Ecumenical Council was that. The Jews were not responsible for the death of Christ. Now, the statement was a very, very dangerous one. Because it went on to say that in a sense we were all involved in that we were all responsible in that he died for our sins. Now, what the Pope did in this statement was to confuse history and doctrine. Historically, the fact is that the Sanhedrin with the people of Judea clearly confirming their decision to crucify Christ. They are guilty of his crucifixion. This is the fact of history. Now, theologically, Jesus Christ died as the sin-bearer of the elect, all those who believe in him by faith. Their sins were nailed to the cross. And he died in order to make atonement for our sins. This was in the purpose and providence of God. Now it's one thing to talk about the religious fact. And another thing to talk about the historical fact. The historical fact is that these people conspired and did it. Nothing can change that. We were not involved in the historical fact. We as sinners in relationship to God were by God's providence before our birth provided with atonement for our sins through the saving blood of Jesus Christ who used the wrath of man and the malice and the vicious hatred of man as the very way whereby he would also save us. Now these two facts are completely separate and distinct. If you say that they did not crucify Christ, you are denying the validity of history. If you say that we were responsible for crucifying him then and there, you are again nullifying the meaning of history. So that this was uh, 
confusion compounded. A very, very regrettable statement. Yes. Uh, I'd like to have you discuss John chapter 14 and 13. And I'll read it history. I, I know this is used by the social gospel people. I'm curious how they, how they mean this. I suspect it takes in other religions and was talking about my father. And there are other mansions. But anyway, let, let not your heart be troubled. We believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am, there you may be also. Now, uh, there are many mansions in my father's house. This is the part I'm curious about. Who is Matt by this? This is not 1413. You must have the wrong. Is that 1413? No? No. That's John 14, uh, 2 and 3. Or 1 to 3, perhaps. 1 to 3. Yes. Yes. In my Father's house are many mansions. In other words, it is a place of vastness. There is no limit to my Father's house, and there is room enough for all whom he has chosen to call unto him. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. Now, this does not say that there is room for any person of any faith. This is an expression conveying the idea of vastness, because our Lord then goes on to say, I am the way, the truth, and the light. No man cometh to the Father but by me. So that there is no possibility of reading this as the social gospelers read it to indicate universal salvation, that anyone, whatever his religion or lack of it, can go to heaven. There is no ground for this. Yes? I'm going to answer this question now first. Let's take a heathen. Of course, you cannot, I know this, you cannot, if you know not the law, you can't be judged by the law, that I realize that. But why should a person come into this world through no fault of his? And maybe not be exposed to religion, you might say. But maybe he only gets exposed to the vicious part of life. And not at any time uh, could he ever possibly have a chance to become, you might be saved. Why should he then be a place for that? For this reason, there is no one who comes into this world who does not know the truth of God. Paul said in Romans 1, 20, or 19 and 20, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them or to them, for God hath showed, or it can be translated, revealed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, 
being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. In other words, the point that is made here very emphatically is this. That man knows all the truth of God in the scriptures, all the truth concerning the fact that God is creator and that no one can be saved apart from him because God has written this witness over the whole face of creation and in the heart of every man. Now, why don't people know this? Because, Paul says in the previous verse, this is the reason why people don't admit to knowing this truth. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth, or in the Greek it reads more accurately, and Luther has translated it as, hold down the truth in unrighteousness. In other words, they suppress it, they sit on top of it. It's in there, it's trying to force its way into their heart and mind, but they are continually fighting against it with all the power and passion in their being, saying, we will not know the truth. Now, to cite examples, when the first white men came to America, and the American Indians were not, I would say, as bad as, say, the uh, people in Africa and many parts of the world, but they were very depraved. Cannibalism, by the way, the very word cannibalism comes from America because most of the Indians are cannibals. You don't read that in the school books. They're romanticized. But when they were asked about God, the one true God, why did they worship the spirits of the dead, of animals, the coyote and the wolf, and so on. Oh, they knew about the one true God, but he was a long ways away, and they didn't want a monkey with him, and they preferred to leave him alone. So they knew, but they were deliberately turning their back on it. And this is the point that the scripture makes over and over again, that all men are without excuse, because it's written on the tables of their hearts. They are holding it down, suppressing it in unrighteousness, because they hate it. Now, man's original sin is this. Satan said, ye shall be as God, knowing good and evil. Every man his own God. And this is what every man tries to be, his own God. And therefore, he refuses to acknowledge God, and he suppresses this truth which is in every fiber of his being and cries out in him continually, but he will not acknowledge it. Well, that's told that I have very dear friend, and I cannot give her to make her believe that there is a life hereafter. She just thinks this is the life and this is it. It isn't that they cannot believe, it's because they refuse to believe. Now, People run away from the truth. They dislike the truth. 
some people who are Christians, often it's ignorance or they're on the right road, definitely, and it's a question of learning as time goes on. But those people who are not with the Lord are resisting the truth. And you find this resistance to truth in every area. This is the mistake, for example, that many conservatives make. They feel it's a matter of education. And they are jarred when they find people don't want to be educated. And the thing you do when you tell them some unpleasant truths is to make them angry. People hate the truth. And the more profound the truth and the heart of truth is the faith. The greater their hatred when that truth is brought home to them. I had a man in one congregation who I didn't know from Adam for quite a while. And I suddenly found out one day when he came into the study that he was seething and boiling with hatred. And he told me, he said, you keep preaching at me every week. And it's the same sermon over and over and over again. <laughs> what was it that I was preaching over and over again? That man is trying to become his own God. He said, I don't believe I've mentioned that. Except in one sermon on Genesis 3 since you've been in the congregation. Oh no, I preached on that every Sunday. I would said it over and over again. And I told him, it's your conscience, the voice of God speaking to you and condemning you. Because I haven't said it. You have heard it, but I didn't say it. Now, this is the problem with people. They want to reduce it to a matter of information. And you see, this is what the rich man in hell said. He said, send somebody back there and give them the information. My brother and relatives, after all, he was saying, Lord, you cheated on me. You didn't give me enough information. Now, don't cheat on these people back there. Give them the information they need. And our Lord said, though one should return from the dead, they will not believe. And this is the crux of the problem. Some years ago, this is so important, I think this bears telling. I may have told some of you this story before, but I think it's so important it will not hurt you to hear it again. Some years ago, when I first went to the reservation, there was a man there in uh, the nearby mining camp, which had uh, all told about 140 men, women, and children, who was obviously a very... Uh, well-educated man, and he was very obviously there working as a shoemaker for the miners because he wanted to be a long ways from the law. And he was very happy to see me come into that area because he didn't have any stimulating conversation with the miners, naturally. And this man could read Greek far better than I could. I was never very good at languages. So that he always encouraged me to stop by and visit with him. Our discussions always turned around the Bible. And 
he would raise an objection every time to one passage or another. Well, I can't believe in the story about Jonah and the whale. I'd go through that. Well, I can't believe this one and that one and that other story and so on. And finally, after a number of months, I began to realize I was just a young man then, what the heart of the problem was, and when he began to repeat the same questions that I had answered him on some months previously, and he admitted that there was no getting around the answer I had given him, I had provided him with reading matter, confirming something where a question of history was involved. I stopped and I said, now John, you've raised that question before. In fact, the last two, three questions you've raised before. And the real problem is not that you're having trouble with Jonah and the whale, but you're having trouble with God because you're a sinner. And the real question, the basic question is this. Are you ready to face up to the fact that you are a sinner? Because I know it and you know it. And are you ready to accept Christ as your Lord and Savior? Well, he didn't want me around anymore after that. Because we did get to the heart of the problem, and he knew it. And he knew that I knew it. Yes. And all the amazing items in your life, love, time, hope, the whole bit. This last week, almost every one of us, including time, had it on the front page, God is dead. Oh, I didn't see all these issues. I was so busy I didn't get near a newsstand. But this God is dead movement, of course, is being uh, very widely publicized by these periodicals. If they're right in what they say about it, The question is, why are they giving it so much publicity? Because, according to the reports, it's Thomas J.J. Altizer, an Episcopal scholar at Emory University, a Methodist institution. It is uh, uh, Rubenstein, Rabbi Rubenstein, a Jewish scholar, and it's a man at Colgate, Rochester, a Baptist institution, Hamilton, and several others, say six all told. Now, to have so much publicity given to six scholars, granted they're in seminaries or universities, so that it becomes the feature study of book after book and of magazine issue after magazine issue is rather strange. Aren't they giving it a lot of promotion above and beyond its importance? Well, the answer is they're not telling the truth when they say it's limited to these men. It is the reigning school of thought in all your major churches. These men are simply being more honest and open about what they so that these men, in a sense, are uh, out there testing the ice see how, to see how much weight it will bear. 
and it will take their weight little by little. The whole of the mainline churches will move out onto that ice. They are in process of moving out on it, and these magazine articles, as well as the books and articles by these men, are testing the ice, as it were, and the ice is able to take it. What they fail to realize is that the wrath of God will melt that ice very quickly, and not too long, I believe, so that they're going to sink. But the movement stems from Paul Tillich and Martin Buber. These two men are the key figures in it. Both are existentialists. And existentialism is the reigning philosophy in every major church today without exception. And Marxism is a more conservative form of existentialism, a little more brutal, but in some respects slightly more conservative than what these men in the church represent. So you can see how deadly dangerous it is when it's to the left of the Marxists. Yes. There was an article in the paper on this Alzheimer's, and he, he says that, uh, I wondered if you uh, clarify the term transcendent and eminent. He says, what God did was answer himself as transcendent. He became totally eminent in the universe. Now, that isn't the true meaning of it, is it? No. Transcendent means something above and beyond this world. Now, he is abusing language there. What he is saying is that the idea of God was once transcendent, and now God, who is really a movement in history, has become totally imminent, so that God is now down here in the world among men. Some of these men, Hamilton, for example, believe that God will be reborn, he is dead, but he will be reborn when we have a one-world order and all men are brothers and you have this perfect socialist utopia and that one-world order of humanity will be God. And this is the essence of what you're getting in virtually every major church today, I believe. Yes. What do you believe happens to the soul of someone who passes on who does not believe in Christ or a life hereafter? Well, what we believe makes no difference to what happens to us, whether we believe in, believe in a life hereafter or not, is irrelevant. It's what God determines. God has said there is a life hereafter, and that those who are the Lord's go to be with him. Those who are not go to their own place. And the Bible defines heaven uh, as the habitation of those who are believers. 
C.S. Lewis gave a good definition of heaven and hell. And he said that heaven is the habitation of those who say to God, Thy will be done. Hell is the habitation of those who say to, uh, to whom God says, Thy will, man, be done. Now, people who do not believe in God will never want any part of heaven. They haven't wanted any part of God in this world. They will want no part of him in the world to come. They are not capable, truly, of enjoying life or of any happiness in the real sense in this world. Therefore, they cannot in the world to come. When they appear in their fullness of what they are. And so, we cannot change reality. This is the way God has established it. And this is the way we have to accept it. And our happiness comes in accepting and acknowledging the reality of what God has established and saying to God, Thy will be done. And it is difficult to say this when we don't understand, but this, of course, is where faith comes in. We have to believe God is good, not because we can prove it in every particular case, but because we know it. By faith, because God is God, his ways are righteous and true altogether. And this becomes our peace and our own joy when we rest in this faith. <coughs> Any other questions? Yes. Elijah. And 
then Christ departs and these saints. So you have these people who have no need for the resurrection because they have in some form or another experienced it already. Any other questions? Uh, I think I see this. Church life was going to go for the next Sunday. going to say, give a sermon on there is a life hereafter and you will receive the love one from God. And it's so hard because there's no clear how to well, I don't know how they explain it. But you're speaking, I I don't want to say it based on what I'm speaking. I just feel I will know, you know, my love and that's all. Of course. It's a real world, it's a personal world. Those who raise questions about do we know people and do we recognize one another are inferring that somehow we cease to be people in that world. But According to everything in the scripture, we become truly ourselves when we are truly in the Lord, and we are fully in the Lord in the life to come. St. Augustine said, Our hearts are restless till they rest in thee. And the perfect rest in the Lord, according to Paul in Hebrews, is in heaven, in the new creation. So that then we are most fully ourselves and most truly know one another. So it's the fulfillment of the human personality. And we become fully what we are. We know ourselves better than perfectly, and we know one another perfectly. Yes. Enoch and Elijah mm-hmm. uh, had already um, arisen you know, before Christ. Uh, why was it such a miracle when Christ was risen and, you know, just like Enoch? I mean, why yes. did There was a difference. Enoch, of course, was taken alive into heaven in the time before the flood. So there was a witness in that era to uh, eternal life. Then Elijah, in the days of the condemnation of the northern kingdom, Israel. But neither of them died first. But our Lord died and was in the grave. Of course, he himself previously had raised three men, uh, two men and one girl from the dead. They died. Yes, they died again, but not in his case. There was an interesting uh, play written some years ago about Lazarus. And the story in the play was that Lazarus, after the resurrection, became a missionary for the faith. And he faced uh, persecution for it, and then finally was arrested and taken before officials of the Roman government and told 
that he should cease uh, his work. And he declared he would continue. And they said, if you do, we'll have to execute you. And Lazarus laughed. He'd been dead once already, and there was no terror in death for him. Well, now, that was a play written, I think, in the late 20s or early 30s, and uh, not historical, but the point is certainly true. Death had no terrors for Lazarus. He'd experienced it once. Yes? It's not only possible that there will be a witness on these churches and ministers who are bearing a false witness, it is certain. And we do know from Leviticus 4, where we have the uh, sacrifices given, that there were three levels of sacrifice. The most important sacrifice was that of the priest, because his sin was the greatest. Then that of the prince, that is, anyone in civil government, and then, then that of the common people which meant that the greater the responsibility before God, the greater the culpability. So in the sight of God, those who are leaders in the church are the most fearfully guilty. And of course, Paul declared, judgment begins at the house of God. And uh, judgment began in this era on Jerusalem. And judgment will begin on the church and with the people of God for their faithlessness. Hence the Lord says, Come ye out from among them and be ye separate, so that you be not partakers of their sins. Because the judgment of God is going to fall upon these churches. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, yes. And this is a problem they are now beginning to face. They are not holding their own. Up until a few years ago, when they were at least in form Christian, they were able to make progress. But now there is a very rapid decline in all these churches. There is a decline in attendance and there is a decline in giving. Many people are dropping out altogether, but others are nominally keeping their names on the books, even though they have quit going. But there is definitely uh, a falling away from these churches as people are disgusted with what they find. In fact, in the last two, three years, some churches have had a 30, 40 percent drop in their receipts. This is where the uh, change 
on the part of many people has been most apparent. Now these churches have prepared themselves for it in that they have built up, built up huge trust funds. In England, the Church of England depends on these trust funds and uh, blue chip stocks for 50% of its income. And this is true uh, in varying degrees of almost every church in this country. We don't have the figures, but I do know in one or two cases how vast it is, and it's very hard to get all the figures accurately. This is one thing that uh, inflation is going to do to them. It's going to destroy money and it's going to destroy all these accumulated funds. They'll be worthless. In the night of that, I know the, um, well, I won't mention the church, but that all these different hotels, businesses of this type, and they're tax-free. And this, to me, is how we can get away with that, because there are not there for Yes. Well, churches themselves should not be taxed, but anything they do that is of a profit-making sort should be taxed. Our time is now over, so we stand dismissed. Mm -hmm.